You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome to the podcast today Father Aidan Kimmel, creator of the blog Eclectic Orthodoxy, which is a tremendous resource for those of us interested in a Christian vision of universal reconciliation. Father Aidan was a minister in the Episcopal Church for 25 years and is now a priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He has written an outstanding, extensively researched article entitled, Did the Fifth Ecumenical Council Condemn Universal Salvation? In my interview with Robin Perry, Robin highly recommended this article, declaring it to be the best resource on the question of Christian universalism and the Fifth Ecumenical Council. So I am very pleased to welcome Father Aidan Kimmel to the Grace Saves All podcast. David, thank you so much for inviting me uh, to join you in this discussion of the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Uh, I'm not a historian, as you know, and it's it's somewhat odd that this topic has become important to me and, and to my blog. I wrote it precisely because I could not find a lot of material on the topic before us. And what I did discover is that much of what we get on the internet or just uh, in ordinary theology books is simply wrong on the question, did the Fifth Ecumenical Council condemn universalism? So it's uh, over the years, I first wrote this five years ago, I think. And Mm -hmm. I've maintained my reading, kept trying to read everything I could get my hands on relevant to the to the council. And so I've, I've updated it at least a couple times each year. So, and it's uh, expanded in, in length, probably three times longer than it was when I first wrote it. So uh, it's become an, uh, an important article and it gets a lot of hits every year. People find it through Google searches and so forth. It is a great article, and I've I have been uh, depending on that article for a good while now because what you did is important. It condenses material from lots of different places into one place in a story that we can follow and understand. So I am so pleased to have you on the podcast today, so we can walk through the article. But I want to recommend that everybody go and and read the article for themselves. So let let me just get started this way. Before we begin examining the Fifth Ecumenical Council and its alleged condemnation of universal salvation, I just want to ask you a very direct question about the traditional doctrine of hell. You know that hell is a place of unending torment, a place of eternal damnation. So my direct question to you is this. Has the doctrine of eternal damnation always been the standard or orthodox teaching of the church? My answer may surprise many of your listeners. The answer is no. And in fact, I would say an emphatic no. And I can uh, just very briefly take us through the first couple of centuries. Okay. Um, Regarding the second century, for example, the evidence, and this is true 
uh, throughout the early, you know, the history of the early church. The evidence is very fragmentary, but we find indications that three different understandings of of, of damnation or perdition were uh, prevalent in the second century. We find the position of eternal damnation, conscious torment, represented perhaps most clearly in Tertullian. We find evidence of annihilationism, and we find evidence of universal salvation. I'll talk about that a little later in the, in, uh, in the podcast. It is impossible to say which, if any, enjoyed dominance in the second century. When we come to the third century, however, things change a great bit. Our evidence gets better. And we know that, for example, that universalism or universal salvation mm-hmm. was uncontroversially taught in the famous catechetical school of Alexandria, uh, notably by the second head of the school, Clement of Alexandria, followed later by Origen, the great, perhaps the greatest scholar, biblical exegete in the early church. Origen clearly taught that all human beings would be saved. Mm-hmm. It was never criticized or condemned for this teaching during his lifetime, or even in the decades later, even by his fiercest critics. And that's true in the third, fourth, and even the fifth centuries. Origen, if we're speaking simply of the salvation of humanity, Mm -hmm. is never criticized. As we're going to see, the reason for that is simply the doctrine itself was an acceptable doctrine to be taught in Christianity. Other Christians, would there would be disagreement, of course, mm-hmm. but they weren't anathematizing or excommunicating each other on this matter. Origen also taught that Satan and the demons would be saved. This he taught tentatively, provisionally, but not dogmatically, and it was controversial. And Later, a century later, Jerome and a couple others would uh, vigorously criticize him for that teaching. Uh, so, that, And we need to keep that in mind. So when I'm, I'm referring to universalism in this podcast, I'm really speaking of the salvation of humanity. Okay. And I'm going to bracket the salvation of demons. In the fourth century, we have in the first uh, early part of the fourth century, two important scholars uh, and theologians, bishops, who attended the Council of Nicaea in 325. We have Eusebius of Caesarea, who was a disciple of Origen and the curator of Origen's library. And we have Marcellus of Ancyra, friend and ally of St. Athanasius. Both of them were uncontroversially present at the Council of Nicaea despite their clear universalist convictions. And no doubt other universalists were present at the, at the uh, council. And it's also possible, as at least a few scholars suggest, that Athanasius, St. Athanasius the Great, may have held universalist sympathies. When we move to the second half of the fourth century, 
we find that Diodor of Tarsus, the founder of the Antiochian School of Theology, and St. Gregory of Nyssa, whom the Seventh Ecumenical Council named the Father of Fathers, were uncontroversially present at the 381 Council of Constantinople, the Second Ecumenical Council. Both of them were clear proponents of universal salvation. That Gregory, St. Gregory, also taught the salvation of Satan and the fallen angels. And Gregory was never criticized for that belief. Mm -hmm. Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, he chaired the the, uh, Second Ecumenical Council. He most definitely held strong universalist sympathies, if not convictions. Let's call him a hopeful universalist. And as with the Council of Nicaea, no doubt other universalists were also present. So the the point I'm making here, or trying to make, is how uncontroversial universal salvation was during these early centuries. Some of our leading light taught it. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, that they thought that the salvation that was accomplished in Christ was so enormous and that Christ himself was the one in and through whom creation itself came into existence, that that vision drove them to contemplate even the salvation of these fallen angelic beings. And it was, yes. it was, it was that further development of thought that became controversial. There was also some thought that Origen had. He had complex ideas about how persons may have pre-existed in the foreknowledge of God. And so but that was very nuanced, and that became misunderstood. And but, but that the, the controversies surrounded those, not just not the simple proposition that human all human beings would be saved. Well, and that's an excellent point, and uh, needs to be emphasized throughout the podcast, uh, because disentangling all of that particularly in the 6th century, disentangling universal salvation from the preexistence of souls and all these exotic doctrines that had developed in the 6th century becomes very difficult. Well, so the idea that early Christianity had only the eternal torment view of hell is incorrect. There was, in fact, a well-represented viewpoint in the early Christianities of the church that hell, or God's afterlife judgments, were to be best understood as a difficult place of eventual restoration for all human beings who entered. But as the years passed, some quite strong opposition to the universal salvation of human beings emerged in the church. And can you tell us about that? And when does this first emerge? That's a very interesting question. Uh, In the late 4th century, over a hundred years after Origen's death, Jerome, the famous biblical exegete, who in the first half of his active career was a strong proponent of universal salvation, and actually continued in a limited sense uh, to support some form of universal salvation. He and Theodosius, Patriarch of Alexandria, and Epiphanius, Bishop of Cyprus, began to vigorously attack Origen uh, on several counts but including his belief in the eventual salvation of Satan. Mm -hmm. But, and this needs to be emphasized once again, 
they did not criticize Origen for his belief in the final salvation of humanity. In the words of the 19th century scholar Thomas Allen, quote, Jerome, Theophilus, and Epiphanius literally scraped together every possible charge against Origen, but never allude to his teaching of a larger hope as heretical, unquote. Now, a good example here is Augustine of Hippo, early early 5th century. He, you know, Augustine did not, of course, invent the doctrine of eternal damnation, but he may have been the first theologian to defend the doctrine with persuasive power and sophistication. In his famous book, The City of God, Augustine discusses at some length the views of the misericordes, the compassionate ones. Augustine did not count himself as one of the compassionate ones. Uh, and he groups these uh, compassionate Christians into seven categories. And it's the first three that are of particular interest to us. Okay. These are groups that were alive, if you will, and present and active in the life of the church at, this, at that time, the early fifth century. Number one, all will be saved, including the demons. Augustine identified uh, this group with Origen. He expressly calls this position heretical, but only because it asserts the salvation of Satan. Uh, he does not dissent from its position that all humanity will be saved. I mean, disagrees with it, excuse me, but he does not call it heretical. He cites no counsel to support his judgment of heresy. His judgment reflects only the majority position of the fifth century Latin church. Well, just to throw this just to throw this in, it's the fifth century Latin church, and at this point they uh, Augustine is reading the New Testament in Latin uh, because he could not yes. read the New Testament in the original Greek. Correct. And I think that's a significant thing to know. He, he's living in North Africa, and we recall in the late second century, the great proponent of eternal damnation was the North African Tertullian. So it, it's that, you know, in North Africa, in particular on the western side of North Africa, uh, that, that doctrine, you know, gets embedded in the culture and the culture of the church there. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, Augustine is simply a inheritor of that tradition, and, and he develops it with great power. The second group of these compassionate Christians I call origin light. Okay. All will be saved except the demons. And this was had, at that time, at origin's time, this was a uh, group of Christians who were especially popular or, and growing in Spain. He does not name this group heretical. He knows that he cannot call it heterodox because it was because the belief or the teaching was still permissible in the fifth century. The third group I call the intercessory universalists, and this is very interesting because I had actually never heard of it until the, really over the past year or so. The intercessory universalist position may well be the earliest form of the greater hope dating to the mid-second century, if not earlier. Unlike the originists who propose a purgatorial fire by which the damned or the condemned will be transformed 
and made fit for heaven, the intercessory universalists maintain that at the last judgment, in response to the intercessions of the saints, God will revoke his eschatological sentence of eternal punishment. Augustine does not reject intercessory universalism as heretical. He just thinks it's wrong. So it seems fair to say that there was a good bit of interest in universal salvation in various ways in early Christianity. But how widespread was this in your opinion? Was it really just a small minority opinion, or was it something more? It's probably impossible for historians to make a judgment on this, given the limitations of our primary sources. But we should not think that the universalists were always in the minority. They may perhaps at different times and places have been in the majority. In the Shorter Rules of St. Basil, which is a rule of laws uh, attributed to Basil for monasticism, we find a passage that asserts, quote, many human beings by such disregarding such weighty and solemn words and declarations of the Lord, award to themselves an end of punishment. He's talking here specifically about uh, universalism. And he says that there are many human beings. The statement suggests that in the late fourth century, the universalist position enjoyed significant popularity among the faithful in Asia Minor, having been taught, after all, by theologians such as St. Gregory Thaumaturgus, St. Pamphilius, Methodius of Olympus, who was also a vocal critic of origin, Eusebius of Caesarea, Marcellus of Ancyra, Diodor of Tarsus, St. Macrina the Younger, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and St. Gregory the theologian. The same was no doubt the case in the province of Alexandria, home of universalists such as Clement of Alexandria, Origen, the Agnostus, Pyrrhus, St. Dionysius of Alexandria, Didymus the Blind, St. Anthony the Great, and perhaps I've already mentioned even St. Athanasius. And as late as AD 420, St. Augustine numbers the opponents of eternal perdition in the Latin West as Quote, indeed, very many. In his book, Universalism, the Prevailing Doctrine of the Church, published in 1899, historian John Wesley Hansen summarizes the early church's tolerance, and in some quarters we would need to say acceptance of the greater hope. Quote, there is no evidence whatever to show that it was not entirely allowable for 500 years after Christ, to entertain the belief in universal salvation, unquote. Hansen's judgment probably needs to be qualified in light of what we've learned from St. Augustine and others. But again, we have clear, ample evidence of people uncontroversially proclaiming the salvation of all human beings through Jesus Christ. So to summarize just a bit here, we have evidence that Christian universalism was well present in the early centuries, but there was also beginning to be a theological controversy around the more complex theology of origin of Alexandria. 
So could you tell us how the initial controversy surrounding Origin eventually grew into a situation where the name of Origin was condemned and eternal damnation became the official position of the church? In order to answer this question, we need to jump to the 6th century. And a theological and spiritual controversy that erupted there in Palestine in various monastic communities. As historians refer to this as the second originist crisis. Okay. And it's very, it's very difficult to describe. Most of the primary sources, uh, well, the writings of these individuals and in these groups have not survived. Uh, we have some descriptions of what they taught or may have taught. But the important point is there was a big controversy going on here. And mm-hmm. Origen was blamed for this. I mean, all these people are Origenists in one form or another. Uh, Origen's influence in Palestine uh, was enormous. Uh, and the controversy became uh, violent, disputatious, uh, it upset the, the bishops of, the, of this area. And so eventually, in the late, um, I would say early 540s, they appealed to the emperor to bring peace, to resolve the disputes. So in 543, Emperor Justinian sent an edict to Menas, Patriarch of Constantinople, commanding him to convene the Home Synod and condemn the controversial views of origin as expressed in nine anathemas, which he attached. Justinian also sent the edict of Pope Vigilius and the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, each acknowledging their compliance. In the edict, these uh, primates were, were instructed to distribute and make known the nine anathemas that the emperor had composed. So... Uh, it comes to the attention of Justinian that there's this controversy building around Origen and people that are enthusiastic about him developing his ideas and getting into controversy. Specifically, this is happening in Palestine, and this triggers some imperial anathemas, but these imperial anathemas cause a later confusion in the manuscript tradition that says that these imperial anathemas were in fact part of the official canons of the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Okay, so what what was it that that these local synod imperial anathemas in 543 actually said? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, uh, we have a set of nine anathemas and historians, the pre-20th century historians um, were unclear where these anathemas came from. And some attributed them to the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Uh, others attributed them to the to a synod of Constantinople of, in 543. But in any case, these nine anathemas are, um, everyone agrees now, were composed by Justinian and his advisors, were appended to his imperial edict, and 
it's clear from Justinian's letter to Menas that he wants the focus to be on origin. As I said, origin was understood as being the primary inspiration for the controversy. Now, that's not literally true because, as we'll see from when we read through these anathemas, Origen didn't believe a lot of what would not have believed and did not teach a lot that the originists of this period were teaching. But Origen was, was made to blame for this. And so the, the uh, emperor's intent is to uh, discredit him. Mm-hmm. So let me read you the reservations. Uh, okay. And I, I want your listeners to, as they're hearing this, I want two things, they're thinking of two things. Number one, they need to be understood as belonging to a whole. It's not as if we have nine distinct doctrines. All these doctrines are interwoven into a comprehensive exotic system. They all condition each other and can only be understood in context of the whole. The second thing I want people to notice is how strange these teachings are. First, if anyone says or holds that the souls of human beings pre-exist, as previously minds and holy powers, but that they reached satiety with divine contemplation and turned to what is worse. And for this reason grew old in the love of God and are therefore called souls and were made to descend into bodies as a punishment. Let him be anathema. Number two, if anyone says or holds that the Lord's soul pre-existed and came into being united to God, the word before the incarnation and birth from a virgin, let him be anathema. Number three, if anyone holds or says that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was first formed in the womb of the Holy Virgin, and that afterwards, both God, the Word, and the soul, being preexistent, were united to it, let him be anathema. If anyone says or holds that the Word of God became like all the heavenly orders, becoming cherubim for the cherubim, seraphim for the seraphim, and becoming in a word like all the powers above, let him be anathema. If anyone says or holds that at the resurrection the bodies of human beings will be raised spherical and does not profess that we shall be raised upright, let him be anathema. If anyone says or holds that heaven, sun, moon, stars, and the waters above the heavens are ensouled, and rational powers, let him be anathema. If anyone says or holds that in the age to come, Christ the Master will be crucified on behalf of demons as well as on behalf of human beings, let him be anathema. If anyone says or holds that God's power is finite and that he created only what he could grasp and comprehend, or that creation is co-eternal with God, let him be anathema. If anyone says or holds that the punishment of demons and impious human beings is temporary, and that it will have an end at some time, and that there will be restoration of demons and impious human beings, let him be anathema. Most of that's pretty exotic, isn't it? I mean, arcane, esoteric. Who has ever heard anyone teach anything like that? It's very strange. So these anathemas generated at Justinian's request, were supposedly to have been based on teachings of Origen, which were being expounded upon by Origen enthusiastic monks in Palestine. But as you were saying, it seems that much of these teachings 
don't really belong to Origen, but rather to those who came after him. Because of um, Justinian's edict, the above anathemas are understood as condemning Origen, uh, and that was clearly the emperor's intent. Yet you note that Origen's name is not mentioned in, in them. Disentangling the authentic teachings of Origen from the 6th century doctrines, presumably taught by Origen's disciples or followers, 350 years after Origen's death. Uh, disentangling these is, uh, from the anathemas is no easy task. Origen most certainly, for example, did not teach that at the eschaton, Christ will be crucified anew for demons and humanity, or that human beings will be raised in a spherical shape, or that God's power is finite. But that, you see, is the crucial contextual point. The anathemas cannot be taken as condemnation of the positions of the real origin, but only of the 6th century originist origin, mm -hmm. originist or origin as understood by these groups. By this time, Palestinian originism had morphed into an arcane, exotic, strange, uh, esoteric, religious, metaphysical, cosmological project, a project origin would have neither recognized nor approved. Regardless, Justinian was determined to discredit origin and in this way undermine the teaching of the controversial originists. But most importantly, and this is, uh, this, uh, this is very important for all of us to understand, these nine anathemas do not possess dogmatic authority in the church. They represent only the views of the emperor. They are part of a, a imperial edict that Justinian imposed upon the church. And one does not disagree with, or, uh, with Justinian lightly, or certainly one does not oppose him. Life. Mm -hmm. As historian Richard Price explains, quote, as regards the canons of 543, they were issued as an imperial decree and sent to the patriarchs, including the patriarch of Constantinople, not for their confirmation, but for their circulation. Their, their authority was imperial rather than synodal, unquote. Those nine anathemas are, are often, even in the history books, attributed to the 543 Synod of Constantinople. But in fact, we have no records of this 543 Synod. We don't know what they did. We assume that the Synod, in fact, approved the anathemas as the emperor demanded, but the point is, their source is the emperor. They belong to an imperial edict imposed upon the church. An imperial doctrine, doctrinal pronouncement does not possess infallible authority in the church Catholic, whether Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or mainline, the mainline Reformation churches. Emperors and kings cannot define 
doctrine. Well, I think that that is an incredibly important point. So it seems that these anathemas concern some teachings which Origen definitely did not teach. And beyond all of this, there is the extremely important point that these anathemas, since they came from the emperor, don't possess dogmatic authority over the church. However, the ninth anathema, even though it does not have dogmatic authority, it does seem to speak rather directly to the question of the ultimate redemption of all humanity. So could we discuss that ninth anathema a bit more? Right. Uh, let me read, uh, reread anathema nine. If anyone says or holds that the punishment of demons and impious human beings is temporary and that it will have an end at some time, that there will be a restoration of demons and impious human beings, let him be anathema. Uh, let me admit, if abstracted from the nine canons as a whole and its sixth century context, it does indeed seem to condemn every form of, of apocatastasis. And perhaps Justinian intended precisely that. I suspect he did. Perhaps the synodical bishops joined in that intention, though we have no record of their discussions. Perhaps the patriarchs agreed, but history has not documented anything more than their subscription to the imperial edict. Let us ask the clarifying question. Did either Justinian or the synodical bishops believe they were condemning the universalist views of St. Gregory of Nyssa? Bring forth the evidence. There is none. Anathema 9 was prompted not by abstract questioning of eternal damnation, nor by dispassionate scholarly study of the theology of origin. It was prompted by the exotic formulations of the restoration of souls to their original disembodied state, then being advanced by the troublesome originist monks in Palestine. Anathema 9, in other words, is intrinsically linked to the condemnation of the pre-existence of souls in Anathema 1, which in turn is grounded in the controversial metaphysics of 6th century originism. This is why nobody calls St. Gregory of Nyssa a heretic. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they acknowledge a distinction between the kind of universal salvation being condemned in Canon 9 and the teaching of St. Gregory. So it's, I'm emphasizing the, the context here of how restrictive this anathema really is. We just can't take it out and read it in a plain way, as in a fundamentalist way, if you will, in a way that applies to every form of universal salvation. No. So the emperor put a good deal of effort into trying to calm things down in Palestine through these imperial edicts. How successful was he? Apparently not. <laughs> and uh, so 10 years later, the bishops of of Palestine, at least one of them, petitions Justinian uh, for further intervention. And this is where matters become very confusing. 
It is often asserted that in 553, the Second Council of Constantinople, otherwise known as the Fifth Ecumenical Council, expressly condemned universal salvation. But in fact, the evidence for this claim is slim, if non-existent. We know that the Emperor Justinian convened the Fifth Council for the express purpose of condemning the three chapters, specifically the person and writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia and the specific writings of Theodoret of Cyrus and Ibis of Edessa. The originist crisis in Palestine was not on the agenda. And according to the Acts or Minutes of the Council, which we do have in a Latin translation, not only were the exotic teachings of the originists uh, not discussed, and they were not condemned by the bishops, but most importantly, universal salvation was neither discussed nor condemned. The council promulgated 14 canons, but none of them mention universal salvation. So what we need to know about the Fifth Ecumenical Council is that we have no record that they discussed anything regarding universal salvation or originism. But the only thing that we do have is that in one of the canons, the name of origin is listed among those to be considered heretical. And so could you right. expand on that a bit? Yeah, origin's name uh, is included among canon 11's list of famous heretics, right along with Arius and Nestorius. Interesting thing is it comes at the end of this. There's a long list. I won't read them now, but there's a list of these heretics, well-known. Their teachings are well-known. And then suddenly Origen's name is thrown in at the end, out of chronological order. The canon does not specify which of Origen's teachings are condemned, nor do the acts of the council record, as I said, any discussion of Origen's teachings by the council fathers. Origen is simply included among the, the anathematized. This is where things get tricky. Others, the others in the list were denounced directly or indirectly by previous ecumenical councils, and their heresies were well known. But those councils had never condemned Origen. Which teachings of Origen, therefore, did the bishops of the Fifth Council believe to be antithetical to the apostolic faith? And to which synod or synods were they appealing? We do not know. Neither the canons nor the acts of the council tell us. And this point needs to be stressed. We may not assume that because the council fathers condemned origin my name, they specifically intended to condemn his specific teaching on epicatastasis. Remember, Origen's teaching on universal salvation was never condemned by his critics from the 3rd through 5th centuries. And the inclusion of Origen in the list of heretics certainly does not allow us to infer that the Council Fathers intended to condemn all construals of universal salvation, which is unlikely given St. Gregory of Nyssa's clear and never condemned support for the doctrine. The establishment of conciliar dogma requires more than guesswork and conjectural inference. And 
As an aside, quite frankly, it doesn't appear that many bishops of the Fifth Council had ever read Origen, or that Justinian had ever read much of Origen. They're, they're not really responding to Origen at this time. They're using Origen as a catchword, a political cipher to condemn the controversial originists in Palestine uh, at that time. And that was really what Justinian was after. He was trying to unite. He, were, he united all the laws of the empire into one set of laws. He wanted to draw the church together and solve the monophysite controversy about whether there was one nature or two natures of Christ. We want to reaffirm there's two natures of Christ. He is both divine and human. So he was trying to bring all of these things together. And as, as an aside, he was trying to solve this problem in in Palestine, and so he thought the easiest way to do that was just to condemn Origen. Yes, I think that I think that probably was the case, and there are many historians would agree with that uh, evaluation. So, two very important things to keep in mind: one, even if Origen's name was condemned at the Fifth Ecumenical Council, we don't know which of his many speculative views were condemned. And number two, even if Origen's doctrine of universal salvation was condemned, his view was a complex one, and it would not have affected more straightforward views of universal restoration, which are not nearly so speculative. However, there is one more part to the story we need to address. It turns out that there are some other anathemas in the historical record of which we should be aware, and I wonder if you could tell us about these. Yes. History has also provided us a set of 15 anathemas, which were discovered in the Library of Vienna in the late 17th century. Uh, these anathemas were attributed by many historians, though by no means all, and I should say many pre-20th century historians, to the Fifth Ecumenical Council, despite the fact that the official acts of the council make no mention of them whatsoever. Other historians of uh, pre-20th century uh, historians also attributed these 15 anathemas to the 543 Synod. So right. it's not always clear uh, where they came from and when they apply. In 1990, when church historian Norman Tanner edited his collection of the decrees of the ecumenical councils, he did not include the 15 anathemas in this collection, offering the following explanation. Our edition does not include the text of the anathemas against origin, since recent studies have shown that these anathemas cannot be attributed to this council. Yet at a popular level, and again, we find this at, uh, throughout the internet and in, in many books of theology, these 15 anathemas are attributed to the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Now, time doesn't permit me to discuss the anathemas in any, in any depth. I can only point our hearers to my essay published on my blog. Today, historians believe that the anathemas were authored by Justinian or his advisors, but most do not believe that they were promulgated by the Fifth Council, given that they are not cited or mentioned in the acts of the council. The generally accepted hypothesis is they, they were presented to a local synod, the home synod in Constantinople, 
some weeks or months before the convening of the general council. Presumably, the bishops confirmed them in some way, I would think perhaps by acclamation, though we don't know because we have no records of this hypothesized synod. But most importantly, these anathemas do not expressly condemn universal salvation in any orthodox form. Anathema 1 is most important. It reads, quote, If anyone advocates the mythical pre-existence of souls and the monstrous restoration that follows from this, let him be anathema. The anathema, or canon, is clearly directed against the doctrine of the pre-existence of souls then being taught by the 6th century originists. But it has nothing to do with the doctrine of universal salvation as taught by Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Isaac the Syrian, or by any contemporary theologian who, who declares the greater hope. As the eminent patristic scholar Ilaria Romelli observes, quote, it is a doctrine of apocatastasis embedded within that of the transmigration of souls that is condemned in this anathema, not Origen's own doctrine of apocatastasis. In any case, it, it eventually came to be believed that the Fifth Ecumenical Council condemned universal salvation. And there, unfortunately, matters have stood for over a millennium. Despite the manifest absence of historical support for it. It is well past time for the church to jettison the legend that universal salvation was declared heretical by the sec Second Council of Constantinople. Well, thankfully, now we are able to speak freely about all of these things and to better understand the relationship between the Fifth Ecumenical Council and Christian Universalism. And I want to thank you because uh, your article has really helped us to sort out this complicated history and made us better equipped to move into the future, being able to reclaim the best of the universalist thinking in the early centuries of the church and to dismiss with the more fanciful elaborations that got attached to it. So I want to thank you, Father Aidan Kimmel, for spending this time with us. Well, thank you for having uh, having me here, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope uh, it will prove helpful uh, to your listeners, David. God bless your work. Well, thank you. And I would recommend that everybody go to the blog, Eclectic Orthodoxy, and read there for yourself Father Aiden's excellent article, Did the Fifth Ecumenical Council Condemn Universal Salvation? Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.